Welcome to this Uvula audio production of X Marks the Spy by Jack Lancer. Volume 3, Chapter 6, A Fast Getaway. Chris's stomach churned as he gazed at the ground and the ant-like people almost a thousand feet below. With a skydiver's roll, he flipped head up, then spread his arms and kicked his heels together sharply. The kick triggered rocket hoppers in his shoes. With a whoosh, Compressed CO2 jetted from his hollow titanium steel soles and heels, billowing into a cloud of white exhaust. As the rockets braked Chris's fall, he hovered motionless for just a moment, and then slowly began to descend again. Suddenly a white line snaked from the tower platform. Geronimo. The Apache must be up there somewhere, and had fired the lifeline shell carried by all teen agents. The aim was good. Chris grasped the line and swarmed up the slender nylon rope to the tower platform. In moments, he was climbing back over the rail to which the free end of the line was hooked. The platform was a scene of wild confusion as a guard trying to calm the milling sightseers. Monsieur, are you all right? He cried frantically. Chris nodded and shouldered his way through the cluster of people. They had gathered around two men who lay sprawled unconscious. One was the Algerian, the other his scar-faced pal. Chris grinned. Geronimo was on deck all right. Goya Chunde, this way. The Apache near the elevator was beckoning. He had one arm around Brigitte, who looked ready to faint. Chris darted to join them. Suddenly, from the corner of his eye, he saw another figure burst into view. The squat, frog-faced man. His hand went inside his pocket. Chris's reaction was faster. He snatched out a pen, aimed it, and pressed the clip. Frogface's eyes seemed to go glassy with amazement. Then he crumpled in a heap. The sleepy sliver of anesthetic would put him out for at least an hour. The elevator cage rose into view and clanked to a halt, and two guards came rushing out. Over there, Chris said, directing him toward the crowd of people at the rail. Merci, monsieur and they dashed past. The teen agents immediately stepped aboard the elevator with Brigitte. Down, please, Chris said urgently to the startled operator. This lady's about to be ill. All the excitement, you understand. Oh, yes, we, oui, monsieur. At ground level, they emerged from the elevator into another excited knot of spectators. Chris smiled and hurried off with Brigitte and Geronimo. The important thing now was to clear out before the police arrived. The teen agents had no desire to discuss their adventures. Come on, we'll use the Algerian's car. Chris led the way toward the spot where the blue Citroen had been parked, but his eyes suddenly widened. It is gone, Brigitte gasped. Who had taken it? Chris shot a startled glance at Geronimo, who responded blankly. Don't look at me, Chunde. A taxi came cruising past. Chris hailed it, and the trio got in. Brigitte gave the driver Triquet's address. On the way, Chris told Geronimo all that had happened. In Apache, he explained that Brigitte was Anson's fiancée, and he felt that she could be trusted. Geronimo, in turn, told how he had trailed the frog-faced man. He made a quick phone call from the airport, the Indian youth related, and then he took a taxi to an apartment across the river up near Clichy, 
no place for a stakeout, so I had to rent a room across the street. About one o'clock, this Algerian character with the beret pulled up in a blue citron and went inside. What happened? Nothing much. Came out with Frogface and a man with a scar. They had lunch at a restaurant down the block and then went back to the apartment. Pretty soon, the Algerian shoved off, carrying what looked like a hat box. It probably held that explosive hunk of ice packed in a cushioning arrangement, Chris said. Geronimo nodded. That figures. Everything stayed quiet until about 5.30. Then Frogface and the man with the scar came out and hailed a taxi. And they went straight to the Eiffel Tower? Right. Eventually, the Algerian joined them up on the platform. I was keeping out of sight on the other side when I saw him give Scarface his coat and beret, and then you two showed up. Brigitte shuddered. It was terrible. Never again do I want to see such a thing, monsieur, as when you were thrown off that tower. Geronimo chuckled. Needless to say, I had to KO the Algerian Scarface with a couple of sleepy slivers before I could fire the rescue line. What about Frogpuss? Chris asked. He ducked out of sight while I was hooking the line to the railing. I was still trying to spot him when you climbed back upward. Chris frowned thoughtfully. Let's see if we can't put the whole jigsaw together. That phone call from the airport may have alerted the Algerian to be on the lookout for Brigitte. He could even have been watching her place while I was staked out of the cafe. Then, after I got dumped at the Seine, he went back to report to Frogface that Brigitte had moved in with her cousin, which gave them a chance to set up the ice caper. What about afterwards? asked Brigitte. How could they foresee you would chase the Algerian and be led to the Eiffel Tower? Chris shook his head. They couldn't have. The Citroen must have had a two-way radio, and he used it to tell Frogface we were tailing him. Then he led us a merry chase around Paris while the other two were getting to the tower. Chris chewed his lower lip for a moment before going on. There's another possibility. About the ice, I mean. Such as? Geronimo queried. Well, there's no telling how big that piece was to start with or how fast it would melt. The container was probably isolated, of course, but I've got a hunch that the ice wasn't placed outside the door till shortly after I arrived. Maybe the Algerian had no chance to sneak in and plant it until then. Could be, Chris agreed. Or maybe it was meant for me rather than Brigitte and Triquet. Or maybe for all three of us. Geronimo looked doubtful. It doesn't add up. How could they guess you were coming to Triquet's place? Well, it's a long shot, I admit, but if the Algerian saw me getting dumped off the houseboat... They may have figured I was bound to come after Triquet sooner or later. Sounds pretty iffy, said Geronimo. Suddenly, Chris snapped his fingers. Wait! Valud! Who's Valud? Geronimo asked. Chris explained rapidly, adding, Maybe Valud is part of Frogface's outfit, too. He could have tipped them off after I called to get Triquet's address. Chris told the driver to pull over near a sidewalk telephone booth. In Apache, he added, I think I'd better call Uncle Phil and report. Uncle Phil was the codename for the Paris station of the CIA. Chris dialed the unlisted number and counted five rings, then hung up and dialed again. 
the signal for an agent's call. A rather high-pitched man's voice answered. Uncle Phil? Yeah? This is Juan E. Kingston. Just got into Paris this morning. Splendid. Is Tui with you? Yes, indeed he is. You're coming to visit Aunt Maud and me, right? Not just yet, but I thought I should call you at least. We went sightseeing around town and had quite a thrilling experience up the Eiffel Tower. Somebody almost fell off and three men fainted. Certainly hope they get looked after promptly, because you never know in cases like that. Very true, my boy. Were they taken to a hospital? Uh, probably, but the police were called too, I imagine. Another funny thing, one of the men's cars disappeared. I happen to know because he arrived at the tower just ahead of our taxi. It was a blue Citroen DS. Chris reeled off the license number. And it was gone when we came down. Well, well, that does sound exciting. Have you had any other adventures? Oh, one or two little things. We'll tell you about them when we see you. Meanwhile, we're thinking about buying some paintings. I was wondering if you could tell us whether a man on the bull Miche named Alexander Valoud is a reliable person to deal with. Alexander Valoud? Uncle Phil said sharply. Good gosh, no. Stay away from him. That fellow has a reputation of being the biggest art faker west of Moscow. Chris's face was grim as he returned to the cab. What's the word? Geronimo queried. Not good. I'm afraid the enemy's scouts have spotted our smoke. He says Balud is the chief red agent in this neck of the woods. Chapter 7 the Omega Key. Geronimo grumbled as their taxi started up again. Things are getting really muddled up at the waterhole. First Toad, and then the Chiller. Now this Balut horns in, and it turns out he makes medicine for the Ritz. I don't like it. The taxi finally pulled up to Trichet's lodging house. When Chris asked to come in and talk some more about Anson, Brigitte agreed. As she fumbled in her bag for a key, Chris remarked, This door wasn't locked when I called here before. How come? Brigitte shrugged. I guess the concierge must have returned. I know her. She is an old gossip. Often she goes out to chat and leaves it open. Let's ask her about this afternoon. Happy in. There she is now. A concierge. A jolly-looking woman with a triple chin and wearing a tent-sized red dress was peering at them from her room. She proved eager to talk. May we, she had gone out, sometime after four o'clock. It was to visit a sick friend down the street. That was the only time all afternoon. True, she had not locked the door because she had not expected to stay away long. Why do you ask, mademoiselle? She went on, darting curious glances at the two Americans. Did anything happen? Besides that explosion, I mean. You heard it, of course. Like an atomic bomb. At first I thought the Germans were attacking Paris again. Brigitte managed to evade her questions and they started upstairs. Well, Jerry, you were right, Chris said. That explains why the ice hadn't been outside the door very long when I arrived. Probably the Algerian couldn't slip in to plant it until after she left. On the top floor, they walked down the grimy hallway to Trichet's studio. Rashid stopped in surprise. 
The letters C.A. had been scratched into the wood of the door, as if with a knife point. Chris looked at Geronimo, both thinking the same thing. C.A. Ciel Assassin. Sky Kill. The secret weapon Anson had been trying to track down when he ran afoul of the chiller. What does it mean? Do you have any idea? Chris asked Brigitte. Her face had taken on a puzzled, frightened look. I, I do not know. Raising her voice, she shouted, Paul! Paul! Tu es là? There was no answer. Brigitte tried the door. The knob turned readily and the boys followed her inside. Triquet lay sprawled on the floor. With a cry of fear, Brigitte ran to him. Chris and Geronimo examined the artist. Is he... is he dead? She faltered. Unconscious, Chris said. From the look of that bruise on his temple, he was knocked out. The studio had been ransacked. Chris and Geronimo soon revived Triquet and helped him to a chair. The artist was dazed but able to talk. Oh, do what happened, Paul? Brigitte asked, wringing her hands nervously. I got slugged, said Triquet, fingering his swollen temple. No doubt it shows well enough, huh? But how? Who did it? Brigitte was already getting a cold, wet towel for the bruise. Triquet shrugged angrily. I did not even see. It was soon after you left with... with him. He gestured toward Chris. My name is Cool. Chris Cool, said the blonde teen agent. And this is my friend, Geronimo Johnson. Triquet eyed the Apache's copper complexion and long black hair. American also? One of the original ones, Geronimo said. Ah, je comprends. Anyway, as I was saying, it was soon after Brigitte and Monsieur Cool left here, maybe five, ten minutes. Suddenly, I heard a scratching noise at the door. Well, I am no fool, you understand. Not after I have nearly been bombed. So I tiptoe over and listen. The scratching ceases. But someone must be out there, so I pulled the door open fast. Triquet snorted in disgust. No one in sight, so I stick my head out to look down the hall, and wham! Someone hits me very hard. That is all I remember. Chris glanced at Brigitte. Did you have anything valuable around here? Triquet cut in. Mais oui, certainement. My paintings! He waited at the canvases scattered around the studio. Well, actually, I meant anything of Anson's that your cousin may have brought when she came here. Brigitte gasped and hurried across the room to the curtained-off living space. A few moments later, she reappeared. Oui, something has been taken. What was it? Chris asked. A key. To what? Brigitte sank down on the couch. I think I'd better tell you everything. Does the word Omega mean anything to you? Sure, that was a code name Anson used. Oui, it is also a letter in the Greek alphabet. The symbol for it was stamped on the key. Brigitte paused as her voice choked. You know all about him, I suppose, Monsieur Cool, but at first I knew nothing of Ivor's work. Only later, when he was in fear for his life, did he reveal he was a secret agent. Chris nodded. What was the key for? 
a sort of mailbox at a cheap jewelry shop. Brigitte named an address in a poor section of Paris near the Gare Saint-Lazare railroad station. I've all had many contacts in the underworld, and sometimes he bought information from criminals or double agents, people working for the other side. But he had to guard his real identity, you see, so he used the store as a little drop for messages, always under this code name Omega. Was the setup still in use even after he left Paris? I do not know, but earlier Ivor had received a tip there about some very important information he was after. About Skykill? Ciel Assassin? Brigitte shrugged blankly. He did not tell me, only that the information was terribly important and urgent, and that someone was willing to sell this information for $50,000. So that was the lead that Q had mentioned. Chris felt a mounting thrill of excitement. Exactly how did Anson get this tip, he pursued. A message was left at the store telling him to phone a certain number at a certain time, something like that. Anyway... A woman's voice answered. She was acting as a go-between. She made the offer and Ivor agreed to her price. What were the arrangements? He was to meet the person who had the information in a town called Bressy. Every year a festival is held there. It begins on the night of April 27 with a feat, a big open house party at the castle of Count de Bressy. Many people came, and it was not difficult to obtain an invitation, Chris said. And Anson was to make contact with this unknown person at the party? Oui, but the meeting would be very risky and dangerous to both of them if it was found out, so they had to plan out the details with great care. How were they supposed to identify each other? The person was to have an X painted on the back of his left hand in invisible dye, I think Ivor was the one who insisted on this. He himself was to carry a device that gave off ultraviolet light and its rays would make the X mark visible. Chris and Geronimo traded glances. Both guessed at once that Anson had planned to wear a UV ring, top-secret device used by CIA agents for identification and code purposes. Geronimo shook his head dubiously. Sounds like a ticklish job. He might have had to check out most of the people at the party that way and do it without attracting attention. Perhaps so, but what does it matter? Brigitte's shoulders drooped unhappily. Before Ivor could go to Brissy, the chiller closed in on him. Three times Ivor was almost killed in Finnish accidents. Every move he made seemed to be watched. He did not even dare contact your intelligence people in Paris. But in the end, La Glacière got him, even in America, just as he will get us too. Triquet sprang up, clutching his mop of hair dramatically. I have had enough of this business. I do not intend to get myself robbed out, even for you, my dear cousin. Why do we not go to the police? You think they could save us from La Glacière? Brigitte said scornfully. Chris paced back and forth for a few moments. Then he turned to the girl and the artist. Have you two got any money? Enough to get you out of Paris and lie low somewhere? Brigitte hesitated. I have a little left. Perhaps if Paul could sell another picture.
There's no time for that, Chris said brusquely. He peeled back several bills from his wallet and pressed them into her hand. Is there a back door to this building? We oui. Then clear out. Tonight. Get as far from Paris as you can on what you've got. And drop me a line care of American Express to let me know where you are. Cutting short their fervent thanks, Chris left with Geronimo through a rear alley. On the nearest boulevard, the boys caught a taxi, watching out the rear window to make sure they were not being tailed. Finally, Geronimo settled back. As they say in the comic books, the plot thickens. Eh, Chunde? If it gets any thicker, we'll be swimming in glue. You realize the chiller could be out to get us next? Chris nodded thoughtfully. The fact that the Citroen parked near the Eiffel Tower disappeared worries me. Whoever took it may have spotted us but good. So what do we do now? Keep Anson's date, naturally. Go to Brissy and find the man with the X on his hand. That's what I thought, Geronimo grunted. Ask a foolish question, get a foolish answer. Chapter 8 Green Smoke There's no reason why I can't take Anson's place, said Chris. The feat at Percy will be on April 27th, Thursday night. That gives us three days to set things up. And you'll pose as Omega and contact X. Sure, why not? If he's willing to sell the information on Skykill for fifty grand, he's not going to quibble over who's paying for it. After all, he doesn't know Omega's real identity. We hope, Geronimo corrected dryly. Chris frowned. You think somebody betrayed Anson? It figures, doesn't it? How else did the chiller get on his trail? All that may have nothing to do with Skykill, Chris argued. But let's say you're right. Where did the leak occur? Maybe from the go-between, the woman he talked to on the phone. Chris looked doubtful. Like a lot of other people, she just knew somebody named Omega was in the market for the information and would pay for it. She didn't know who Omega was. Seems more likely the jewelry shop owner sold him out. Could be, the Apache conceded, which brings up another point. What about this stolen key? Good question. If there's any message in Omega's dropbox, we better lay hands on it before somebody else does. Chris gave the address of the jewelry shop to their driver. Both boys were silent as the taxi rolled along through the gathering darkness. Street lamps had been turned on, and the store signs flashed brilliantly along the boulevards. In the dingy neighborhood behind the Gare Saint-Lazare, the taxi pulled to a stop. The street was shrouded in gloom, except for a few lights here and there, mostly from upper windows. The driver gave the boys a curious glance as Chris paid him off. Shall I wait, monsieur? No, merci. The jewelry shop was closed for the night, with an iron grill pulled across the front. Its display window was crammed with gaudy, cheap-looking necklaces and rings. Geronimo peered at the windows above the shop. All were dark. Nobody answered when Chris tried the bell at the doorway leading to the upper floor of apartments. Nobody home, said Geronimo. He looked at Chris then away and began humming one of his Apache war chants. The owner may live in back, Chris said. Let's check. The boys skirted around the block. At the rear ran a narrow alley. They counted off the individual buildings until they came to the one which housed the jewelry shop. It had a single window on the ground floor, also dark, but the back door was slightly ajar. 
Well, well, Geronimo murmured. Looks like we're too late. Think we should... Shh. Be as silent as an Indian. The boys strained their ears for several minutes but could hear nothing. Finally, Chris reached out to push the door open. Hold it. Geronimo's scalp prickled with a sudden sense of danger. Let's not go walking into anything, Chunde. You're right. Stand clear, Jerry. As Geronimo moved aside, Chris flattened himself against the wall and nudged the door with his toe. Blam! With a loud report and a blinding flash, a sheet of white flame shot from the doorway. The flame fizzled out to a cloud of green luminous smoke. It was acrid and nauseating. Chris ripped open his tie and molded the special material over his nose and lips to form a teen agent's emergency gas mask. The smoke was growing thicker and billowing through the whole alley. Roused by the blast, the neighborhood had suddenly come alive. Windows were flung open or slammed shut. Voices were shouting. A policeman's whistle shrilled. Chris clutched his eyes against the stinging gas and groped blindly for Geronimo. Instead, his hand bumped against something that felt almost like the snout of a gas mask. He clawed at it, trying to grapple with the wearer, but a fist slammed him aside and a cold knife blade grazed his cheek. Whoever had been inside the shop was getting away. Suddenly, a friendly hand gripped his arm. Geronimo. Together, they fled down the passageway. In a few minutes, the pair slowed glumly to a walk on a nearby boulevard. Let's look at it this way, said Geronimo. That gas probably did a great job of exterminating all the rats in the alley. Not quite, said Chris sourly. The biggest one got away. Whoever stole the key set that booby trap on purpose in case we came and interrupted him. They stopped at a cafe while Chris phoned the CIA station chief. It's wanting again, Uncle Phil. I know this is short notice, but we're eager to see you. Tonight? Well, dear me, I'm sorry, my boy, but I'm about to retire in, oh, about 40 minutes. Chris glanced at his watch. 8.21. Too bad, but we couldn't have made it before 9.30 anyway. Some other time, then. How are you and Aunt Maud looking these days? Oh, fine, fine. She had her hair tinted today. Lovely shade like maples in October. A tray gay. Been suffering a slight cold myself. Have to wear a cloak when I go out. Very sensible. Where could I get one? Try Taylor over on the left bank. He's Scotch, oddly enough. Name's Campbell. Lee Campbell. Has a small cellar shop. Chris hung up and turned to Geronimo. We're all set. Where do we meet him? It must be one of those cellar nightclubs on the left bank. What they call a cave... We'll have to check out the name first. After reclaiming Geronimo's bag from his rented room, the boys went to their hotel to clean up. Checking through a tourist directory in the lobby, they found a night spot listed by the name Le Cannibal. That's it, said Chris. He'll be wearing a cloak, and she has reddish dyed hair. The place turned out to be a smoky stone cellar decorated with modernistic paintings. The waiters who dodged among the tables were made up like cannibals in black fuzzy wigs with white plastic bones clipped to their noses. 
Couples were dancing to the music of a black jazz combo. Wow, listen to that right hand of the piano, said Chris. That is really hot, like filigree. Geronimo pointed at the hamburger he was trying to eat. Yeah, this is very bad, like mule meat. It's all they serve here. Guess I should have told Uncle Phil we hadn't eaten yet. Great. We come to Paris and eat hamburgers. Should have stayed on the reservation. A few minutes after 9.30, a small, dumpy, bald-headed man in a velvet cape came sweeping into the room. A huge, muscular woman with orange-red hair clung to his shoulder. Whoa! Geronimo gasped, choking on a bite of hamburger. Don't tell me that's Uncle Phil and Aunt Maud. His real name is Grub, Chris muttered under his breath. Q says he poses as a nutty poet for cover. The woman's his secretary and bodyguard. The couple drew scarcely a glance from the odd types of the nightclub. Chris and Geronimo stood up to greet them. The man flung back his cloak and peeled off his gloves to shake hands. Hey, boys, how are you? Chris pulled out a chair for the woman. Her massive arms and shoulders looked powerful enough for a pro tackle. She wore a fixed smile. Grub leaned toward the boys. Aunt Maud's deaf and can't speak, but believe me, not dumb. She can read lips in five languages and murder you at karate. Geronimo stared at her admiringly. Now that is what I call a real squaw. Quite right, my boy. She's worth her weight in gold. That adds up to a sizable bit of bullion. The CIA man said he had tipped off French intelligence that the three thugs on the Eiffel Tower were enemy agents. They're all safe in the clutches of the Duzième Bureau, but so far there's no report on that Citrone. Chris related their own adventures. Grubb pursed his lips thoughtfully on hearing Chris's plan to keep Anson's rendezvous at Brassy. Fifty thousand, eh? It's a lot of money, my boy. Still, it may be worth the gamble. If we can squeeze that much out of the home office. Now then, about Brissy. I've heard of this annual shindig the Count throws at his chateau. Quite an affair, they say. Shouldn't be too hard to get in, but you're going to need cover. Huh. Let me think about that. Grubb twiddled his thumbs in thought. The woman tapped his arm and made rapid signs with her fingers. Huh, yeah. That's very clever you, my dear. She's reminding me there's a girl's finishing school down there. That could be a useful angle. The CIA man promised to transmit a coded message to New York immediately and to get in touch with the boys as soon as he had news. Chris and Geronimo slept late the next morning, with their French windows wide open to the sunshine. They discussed their plans for the day over croissants and chocolate. What about the jewelry shop? said Geronimo. Think we could get anything out of the owner? Well, there's no harm in trying. At least we might find out if Omega's mailbox got cracked last night. On their way through the lobby, the boys passed a girl talking on one of the house phones. Chris froze and plucked Geronimo's sleeve. That girl! I just heard her say sky kill! Geronimo veered to a table in the lobby and pretended to leaf through some travel folders while he looked her over. She was young and dressed in a pink spring outfit. She looks American to me, Geronimo commented. Chris gave a slight nod. Just a tourist, maybe? But we better find out. 
You want to rope this filly by yourself. Well, it might be easier. Why don't you tool along to that jewelry shop and then check back later? Geronimo strolled off and went out the front door of the hotel. Chris studied a folder describing the sights of Paris until he saw the girl hang up on the phone. Then he walked over and spoke to her. Excuse me, but aren't you a cliffy? The girl giggled nervously, displaying buck teeth. She had stringy, mouse-colored hair and was wearing fancy sunglasses. Me? From Radcliffe? Gosh, no. Just Mid-State Teachers College, but I suppose I ought to be flattered. Or should I? Depends on what you think of Cliffy's, said Chris, giving her his most Ivy League smile. In your case, no flattery is necessary. I just thought I remembered seeing you up there. Her name turned out to be Veronica Schlumbacher. Chris felt a twinge of doubt, which sharpened later over lunch at the Closerie de Lilas. With her sunglasses off, she looked even worse. Chris wished she had left them on. Bit by bit, he had worked the conversation around to ask whom she had been talking to in the lobby. Oh, that was Tina Foss, the girl I'm traveling with. She called just as I was going out, so I took it on the house phone. Veronica giggled again. She told me she'd just met a boy from her hometown, Schuylkill, Pennsylvania. Chris groaned inwardly. The girl had said Schuylkill, not Skykill. Why hadn't he listened more carefully? Now he might be stuck with his female for the rest of the day. After dessert, Chris excused himself to make a phone call, saying he had to check with his roommate. We, um, have an appointment at two o'clock. Probably tie us up for dinner. Veronica looked disappointed as Chris hurried off. The hotel switchboard operator told him there was no message from Geronimo that, that she would try their room. He heard two rings. Then the phone was lifted. Hello? Chris's pulse skidded. Whoever had answered was certainly not Geronimo. Disguising his voice, he said in French, is this room for twelve? We, uh, oui. uh, Monsieur Cool, please. There was a moment's pause before the voice replied, "This is Monsieur Cool speaking." Chapter Nine, The Sleeping Turk. Chris felt a weird sense of unreality hearing another person claim to be himself. The effect was distinctly unpleasant. Someone was not only on his trail, but that somebody was in his room at that very moment, no doubt exploring his and Geronimo's luggage. "'Who is calling, please?' the voice demanded sharply. Chris thought fast and replied, "'My name is, shall we say, Ciel Azur, to be discreet?' The answer would reveal whether the unknown visitor knew anything of Ciel Assassin. "'Ah, oui!' There was a hissing and take a breath. I understand. Might as well make the bait as big as possible and try to hold him there, Chris decided. I have the information you want, he went on. I must deliver it to your hotel at once. The voice at the other end tried to stall. I, I was just about to leave, monsieur. It would be much more convenient if we could meet later somewhere else. Impossible, Chris snapped. If you want the information, Monsieur Cool, you had better stay there and wait for me. He hung up the phone before the man could object. 
Returning to their table on the terrace, Chris apologized to Veronica. What a break, he grumbled. I was hoping we might see the Louvre together this afternoon, but I guess that's out. The appointment's all set for two o'clock. Veronica was staring down sadly at her plate. Of course, well, that's quite all right, she gulped. It's an interview for a job at one of those youth hostels? Chris fibbed uncomfortably. We may have to leave Paris tomorrow, so, um, I probably won't see you again. Veronica said she understood and put on her sunglasses hastily. Chris felt like more of a heel than ever. Can I drop you anywhere? No, thanks. I I may do a bit of window shopping. That's what I was planning to do before we met. Thank you ever so much for lunch. Chris taxied back to the Hotel de Empereur alone. At the reception desk in the lobby, he paused to check on their room key. It was gone from its hook. There are two of you in room 412, are there not, monsieur? said the clerk. No doubt it was your companion who took it. How long ago did he get back? Chris probed. The clerk gave a Gallic shrug. I could not say, monsieur. I came on duty only two or three minutes ago. Chris took a self-service elevator up to the fourth floor. His brain worked rapidly. If Geronimo had returned and walked in on their unexpected caller, anything might have happened. On the other hand, the phony Monsieur Cool might have filched the key himself when the concierge was not looking. Before stepping out of the cage, Chris twirled the stem of his wristwatch communicator to the transmit position and then pulled the stem out. If Geronimo was anywhere within a range of several miles, he would hear a sharp buzz. There was no response. Chris signaled again. Still no answer. So, Monsieur Cool must be the one who had taken the key. Mentally, Chris debated the best strategy. Getting into the room without a key was no problem. The teenager's training course had fully prepared him to cope with any type of lock. But how would he catch the visitor off guard? The French windows, of course, Chris thought. There was an outer balcony, he recalled, that ran along the side of the building. If he could slip through one of the adjoining rooms, then he could approach their own room from the balcony, maybe even observe Monsieur Cool's activities unaware. Chris tiptoed softly along the carpeted corridor. The second room before 412 bore a do-not-disturb sign in French, hanging from the doorknob. He put his ear close to the panel. Loud snores vibrated the woodwork. Chris lifted the sign gently from its knob. It was plastic, excellent for his purpose. He inserted the sign into the crack of the door and expertly loitered back the tongue of the lock. The hinge creaked slightly as he opened the door. Chris froze, but the snores continued. With his pulse thudding only twenty beats per minute faster, he closed the door behind him. The room was in deep shadow, with the curtains drawn across the French windows. A huge, bull-like man was lying asleep in the bed in his underwear. His head was shaven egg-smooth, and a large black handlebar mustache branched out luxuriantly under his hooked nose. His mouth was hanging open, and the mustache quivered delicately on the exhaust stroke of each snore. Holding his breath, Chris tiptoed across the room. He had nearly made it to the window when, crash! In the semi-darkness, he had knocked over a suitcase. The snores ended with an explosive snort as the sleeper in the bed stirred. 
Chris barely had time to drop to a crouch behind an armchair. Then the bed springs creaked as the man sat upright. He gave a deep baritone grunt and cleared his throat with a noise like boulders rumbling down a tin roof. Chris peered out cautiously and saw him hulking on the edge of the bed, yawning and scratching himself awake. How do I get out of this one, Chris thought nervously. Presently the man got up and stalked over to the windows and drew the curtains aside. The action was alarming in more ways than one. The fellow was even bigger than he had appeared while horizontal. He had to be at least six foot six and was muscled like Mr. America. The shaven head, hawk nose, and fierce mustachios made him look like one of those professional wrestlers who like to bill themselves under such names as the Turkish Strangler. Chris began to perspire freely. The man opened the windows and breathed in deep gusts of fresh air. Chris estimated his chest measurement as somewhere around 49 or 50 inches exhaled. His collar size is 18 or 19 at the smallest. The teen agent literally stopped breathing in fear that the man might glance behind the chair at any moment. Instead, he turned away and walked across the room and began rummaging on the floor of the closet. Now what? Chris wondered. The answer came as the man straightened up, clutching a pair of enormous dumbbells. For the next five minutes, he went through a vigorous exercise routine, twirling the dumbbells as easily as if they were baby rattles. Cold sweat trickled down Chris's skin. He caught several fleeting but terrifying glimpses of the fellow's biceps bulging like pumpkins. Chris was numb with cramps and prolonged anxiety when the terrible Turk finally put away the dumbbells. He stalked into the bathroom and closed the door. Soon afterwards came the hissing noise of the shower. For a moment, Chris closed his eyes in relief and mopped the beads of perspiration from his forehead. Then, painfully, he arose from his crouch and hobbled toward the windows. One leg almost crumpled under him, but he rubbed away the pins and needles and made it safely to the balcony. Outside, he moved swiftly along the balcony to his own room and peered in. To his surprise, it appeared empty. Was he too late? Had the intruder left without waiting for Ciel Azur? Or was he still lurking about? Chris watched for a minute or two, uncertain what to do next. Slowly, cautiously, he eased the French windows open and stepped inside. Then, the roof caved in as somebody nailed him on the back of the neck with a karate chop.